Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. One of my earliest memories is being on a beach in the late afternoon as the fog is kind of drifting in, in Northern California. Probably this beach was, I want to say, someplace along the Sonoma County coast. So could be Jenner, could be one of those beaches it could even be down by Marin even possibly, but it was it was a long, long time ago, but back when I was a little kid, and it was my earliest memory was sitting under this little tarp, kind of huddled next to my mom for warmth. I was It was really cold, and I could hear the fog. We were camping on the beach, and this is like a 19, maybe 1968 or 69, and my parents had taken us out to the beach and then said, oh, why don't we sleep over and sleep out, and there were other folks around, and so we had had food. There was a big bonfire, I guess, and then they decided, oh, we're going to just sleep on the beach, and this is before camping gear became a thing, so there wasn't a camping pad or anything like that. We didn't even have a tent. I remember just laying huddled next to my mom. I could hear the sound and I could feel the vibration of this incredible pounding surf from this wild coast, the Pacific Ocean just slamming again and again into the ground and hearing seagulls, hearing seals and feeling the breeze, you know, kind of blowing the smell of seaweed and bulk kelp. And it was just the earliest memory that I have of like being out in nature that feeling of just being completely surrounded. You know, I'm kind of nestled next to my mom, my dad, and my sister, and just feeling held, like just held. We were kind of nestled in the sand. I, I felt like we were really one with that spot. And I mean, that's all the memory is. So I, I you know, let's face it, I was really young and I didn't have a lot of an analysis going on with me. But that was one of my first uh, earliest memories. And then a second memory is being with my dad. And I don't know where this was, but it was somewhere in the desert. And my dad had gone and driven somewhere with us. And at one point he said, hey, let's go outside and, and check it out. And so we went away from the car behind some bushes. And as far as the eye could see, it just looked like a parking lot with like little shrubs. It was just gravel and it was just wind blasted gravel and dust and sand. And way in the distance, I could see the hazy outline of some mountains. And it was unbelievably hot and it was totally silent. I think we were there probably at like the middle of the day. My dad just stood really motionless and we were all quiet. And it just was so still, you couldn't hear anything except your own heartbeat. And I really remember being struck by that feeling of having this whole world, this kind of an alien world around me at that moment and feeling like I was entering into a new experience of something. I, I, I didn't really know what it was in any way, but I knew that it was something that was speaking to me. And it's a memory that I've always had that I've, I'll always appreciate that from my dad for giving me that experience. It didn't last very long because I think we were all, you know, my, my sister probably was like, I'm hot, let's go, let's go. We got back in the car and took off, headed out wherever we were going. But both of those were in California. And that's where I was born. I grew up, in, you know, born in LA, grew up in Sacramento up until I was nine, then moved with my mom. My, my father and my mom got divorced when I was seven. And then when I was nine, we moved to upstate New York. 
And we actually were living in a kind of a, a Waldorf type of community uh, around the Hawthorne Valley Waldorf School back in the day. And we ended up going to school at the Hawthorne Valley School. And we were part of, me and my friends were part of the first graduating eighth grade class from that school. And at that time, it was you know run by a bunch of excited, I don't want to say hippies is the wrong word, but very enthusiastic and idealistic folks that came up from New York City to form this kind of a country-based, you know, Waldorf school up there. And it was very small. A lot of our classes were like in a goat barn and, you know, in a converted building, old farmhouse. And it was a, it was a really interesting nature-infused experience. Uh, coming from California to upstate New York, really different. California sort of has like the wet season and then the insanely hot and dry season and never the two shall meet sort of, you know, experience. New Upstate New York had four seasons, you know, snow and early spring and mud and cold and, you know, lightning bugs and thunderstorms and the incredible fall foliage in the autumn. And just so many different moods that I found California didn't have. Of course, I didn't really know any of this. I just was experiencing it as a youngster then. But in case you haven't noticed, this is my origin story for all of you for the Forest Educator Podcast. I figured I'd start with this just because I wanted you to get a sense of who I am and where I'm coming from, some of my background as I'm approaching these interviews and sharing some skills and things I've learned over the years. So I figured I'd just give you a real overview of, of where I've been and what I've done. Welcome. And uh, I will do my best to have it be picking the most exciting things for this little spotlight for me. So I lived in upstate New York with my family, and it was very rural where we lived. And I was a voracious reader. There was only three channels on the television. This is like 1968, 70. There was, this is long, you know, we didn't have answering machines. We didn't have, uh, you know, obviously cell phones, computers, any of that. And so everything was books. And magazines were a big thing too. And my, my time was spent really voraciously reading everything I could get my hands on, anything that had to do with adventure. So I would read stories about the pioneers, the Native Americans, the mountain men. I would read stories about the explorers and people that took care of animals. Or I don't know, there was a lot of, there, there was a lot of different books that I tried to get into. We just read a ton of everything. I had a friend who was dyslexic, and so he, he really had trouble reading. And so I spent a lot of my days over at his house, sitting in front of a wood stove, playing with Legos, and I would read Tom Swift or, you know, any of those stories, Jules Verne. All I wanted to do was learn how to live the way Native people lived back in the day. Like when, you know, White Fang and Jack London, when we'd read those books, we would get bundled up in sheepskins from our living room and put those on sleds. And we would like, you know, walk out in a snowstorm and pull our toboggan around pretending we were sled dogs and we were living in Alaska or someplace in the far north. And we just, our imagination was really, really keen to have an experience like what we were reading about in these stories. And, you know, when we saw the movie... The Three Musketeers, then we read the books, and then I, they, we all had to have swords. So I remember us trying to heat up, like, fence, these metal fence posts in the fire, uh, you know, outside of uh, 
where his dad was a farmer. We had a little fire that they he was burning, you know, like old pallets or something. We tried to get the fire hot enough so that we could get the metal hot enough so we would then hammer it to make, you know, I think we, we flattened about maybe an inch of each of these supposedly going to be our, our, our swords. We were just so excited to have this the kind of adventure that we would read about in these stories and that really was the driver for me to want to connect to nature and then later as I got older as a teen we moved out of that community uh, I wasn't around my friend that much anymore I spent a lot of time in the forest just going like I bet you I could make things out of stuff here in the woods but I really don't know how to do that and I remember reading a book that talked about, it was a Native American folk tales or uh, stories. And it was about two boys that were up in like the Great Lakes somewhere. They were looking for basswood because they were going to use the fibers to make fishing line. And I remember thinking like, what's a basswood tree? Because <laughs> I didn't know. I knew maple and pine trees and firs and spruces, but I didn't know really what a basswood was. And then I thought about it when I did find out what it was. I looked at the bark and went, I can't make a string out of that because it just looked like this hard thing on the outside. So I, I would just remember being like puzzled because it would say, oh yeah, so-and-so would sharpen a spear with a rock and then they would get an animal. And I would just think like, well, what kind of spear? How long? How long was the point? How sharp was the point? What, did they, what kind of rock did they use? Like all these questions would come into play when I would try to do it myself. I mean, in the end, I would like take a broomstick and try to make a spear point by rubbing it on concrete. And uh, that was not that successful. My, my experience was very frustrating, to say the least. But my passion never really waned. And I graduated high school in upstate New York and flew back to California to visit my family. And I ended up staying with my grandparents in California, in Sacramento. And I went to school there. And while I was there... I discovered the California Conservation Corps. And the California, the CCC, as they call it, the California Conservation Corps, is an organization that still exists and does incredible work. And we, you know, had to go to an academy and learn firefighting techniques, flood control techniques, tool use and safety. And once you got done with your two or three week academy stay, learning how to really work as a team and, and how the whole place worked, you would then go to a center where you would do work, you know, and live. And it all varied because California is just such a massive state. So I, I was putting in to go to the northern coast to be up in the redwoods and clear streams for salmon. And so I got chosen to go there and I thought I was going to Humboldt, but I ended up going to this little tiny town of Leggett. And Leggett had a little, little community there of like 20 people. And at first I was really disappointed because I wanted to be at the big center where there was like a hundred people and it would be much more socially diverse. And instead we were in these like four trailers on the side of a mountain overlooking the Eel River in the middle of winter. And this was back when Northern California had really rainy winters. I mean, it would just rain all day, all night, all day. I mean, the rivers were swollen with water. And, you know, we would go out and clear streams of salmon, do this really wonderful work, pulling logs that were buried in these, like, log jams uh, from when the initial logging had come through. And they didn't stabilize the soil, so that a lot of the soil would come in and all these logs would jam in there. And we'd have to kind of chainsaw them out and pull them out with, like, grip hoists and winches and then chainsaw it up. And then my job initially was to be the fire specialist 
and take all that wood and burn it, you know, in this little, in this rainy, pouring rain ravine and try to get rid of that wood so that, you know, it wouldn't clog up downstream. And I got really good at making fires in the pouring rain, which, which I loved doing. It was very cold doing that because everyone else was staying warm by working and I was like huddled there splitting up kindling and trying to get that fire. But eventually when that fire went going, nobody was cold then. I did that for like a year and then got on a backcountry trail crew and that let me go all over the state, going to state parks, national forests, BLM land, uh, Sequoia National Park, Inyo National Forest, the Golden Trout Wilderness. Like we went all over the place, Kings Canyon. Uh, we went to Klamath up in Happy Camp and the Shasta Trinity Alps. We did uh, work on the Pacific Crest Trail for that. Basically just doing trail work all over the place. We built a couple of bridges up on the Salmon River. We were in the uh, Trinity Alps clearing sections of trail that were just mind-blowingly beautiful. Places that I just, everywhere, every day I would get up and get out of my tent and just go like, what am I doing here? It's just this feeling of being in pure wilderness areas. And this is, of course, uh, like the years, probably like 1984, 85. And it is... You know, before there, you know, the explosion of recreation, people. So, like, you really wouldn't see people for days, any other person except people on your trail crew. And it was, it was really an amazing experience for me to be out there. For the first time, I was like, "Hey, I'm carrying a big crosscut saw, clearing giant logs from the trail." You know, with a crosscut saw with somebody, and I, I literally felt like I was a character in one of those stories back from you know 150 years ago. You know, stories of like lumberjacks and people, people who did this kind of like powerful work. I, I remember coming down. It was like my last day from the trail crew. We, we were clearing. We had gone all the way to the border of Kings Canyon. We're coming back down into the Owens Valley. And I was the last person off the mountain. And as I was coming down, I could see the, the sunlight, the alpen glow of the setting sun on the White Mountains, which is where the bristlecone pine forest is, some of the oldest trees on earth. And I was just looking across this whole this whole place and just thinking, this is so beautiful and I feel so grateful to be here. I really want to dedicate everything I am and everything I have to protecting this beautiful wild earth. And I remember that promise so vividly I remember coming back down and next thing you know, we're back in Sacramento a few days later and going to San Luis Obispo to my new center. But it, it, was a, it was a really peak experience for me to travel to all these places. During that time, I had bought a book called The Tracker with Tom Brown. And Tom had, I learned that he had this like wilderness school that was just starting out and as a you know, a little notice in the back of the book. And so I ended up going to that about six months after the trail crew. I said, I'm signing up for a class. And I, I went and, you know, took my first class and flew out to New Jersey from California. I think I was flying People Express back then. So if you're old like me, you'll remember People Express. But uh, got there and Tom was like at that point, Tom was the person that I always had wished I, had, I could meet when I was 14, when I was 10, when I was 12. Because Tom knew how to get fibers from basswood. He knew how to sharpen uh, a stone. He knew how to sharpen a spear. He knew how to track animals. He knew how to do all these things that I desperately had wanted for years and years and years to be able to do. And so Tom basically taught us in five, six days. It was a 
you know, we had like 20 people in the class. It was a very, very small class. And we learned, not only did we learn the skills, you know, wood carving and coal burning and building a shelter and fire making and all these things, but we also learned this kind of a, a philosophy or an approach to nature that was like really one of extreme gratitude, thankfulness, really asking the forest, like, hey, is there a part of you that I could take that would not hurt the forest, but would actually maybe even help the forest if I was selecting, you know, an arrow shaft or some part of it to learn. And I'd always have to keep in mind that I'm learning this so that I can help people someday if I ever need to. So there was always this idea of a purpose. It wasn't just a random taking of something like, I need this, boom, go grab it. But it was a a sensitive dialogue and and it was about being able to be aware that sometimes it wouldn't feel okay to pick certain plants or cut a branch or use something and that that was okay. So I got introduced to concepts back then that have stayed with me for a long time. Tom Tom was a real stickler for mastery. He was he'd always talk about learning a skill and then going, you know, going further, going deeper, really mastering, like say fire making. It wasn't enough to just make like one fire without matches, like fire by friction with a bow drill or hand drill. But he would say, you start to learn about fire a little bit when you've mastered a hundred fires. And then when you've done a hundred fires with five or six different types of, you know, hand drill stalks or bow drill stalks or wood, then you will start to learn something else, another layer. And then he's like talking about, well, you'll learn about bow drill a lot more when you do it blindfolded, when you go out into the woods in the middle of the night and you have to carve the entire set in the dark, in pitch black and do that, or in a thunderstorm or in a snowstorm. And that really stuck with me. I, for some reason, that concept of mastery was just awesome. And I took all of this to heart. What I know now, I was an ADHD young person in my 20s, really looking for a path forward in my life. And this gave me something to do that I loved. I just loved making things, gathering things, just being out and learning and learning with other people and also on my own. And I took that to heart in a way that is still with me today. And so I, I, I'll always be grateful for Tom for feeding that part of me and saying, hey, this is okay to do to do this. And, and here's a way to begin to learn and teach myself how to do these things. It was, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for Tom for doing that. Through that process uh, and my desire to learn, eventually I left the CCC, came back to New York, took more classes with Tom down in New Jersey in the Pine Barrens. And then I came home and I found that every time I would go out into the woods and build a shelter or go gather something or be sitting by a stream, kids kept showing up, like 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. They would just show up and say, hey, what are you doing? Like, can I do that? And I would say, oh yeah, you know, okay. So I'd be carving a spoon or, you know, practicing how to make a, a fire or I would be building a shelter. And next thing you know, there'd be three kids helping me build a shelter. And then they would say, when can we all camp here? And I would be like, I don't even know who you guys are. And I don't know if I should be even hanging out. Do your parents know you're here? You know, like it was just this like really kind of hilarious thing that happened. I don't know exactly why, but it, it was so interesting because these kids would show up and then they would not want to leave. And then I'd hear the parents walking down a trail going, Bobby, where are you? And I'd say, hey, that's your mom and dad. You better go. And they would, they would take off. And then they'd say, when are you going to be back? And, and I remember one time telling one of the boys, they said, uh, 
oh, you know, when, when, can we co- when can we get together again? And I'm like, I, I don't really know. I might be going into the wilderness for a long time. And I remember the look on this boy's face because he, I realized that meeting me, he had the same desire to learn that I had when I was his age. And that if I left, there would be no one to really teach him. And, and so I remember sitting with that for a long time, uh, trying to figure out, well, what should I do? Again, I'm only like 20, 21, 22 years old. And at that point, uh, there was a wilderness camp, uh, a farm and wilderness camp nearby. And they said, hey, would you want to, we have an opening for a counselor. Would you be interested in coming out and being a nature camp counselor here at our program? And so for $300, I stayed at the camp for a month, got fed, and they gave me a bunch of kids and I helped out. I, I had other staff members that I apprenticed under, you know, senior camp counselors and leaders. And so I learned a lot about taking care of kids and playing games and learning about that supervisory part and, you know, kind of following the the path of the forward with the camp and the community. Uh, but I but I really was excited because I found that the things that Tom was teaching me translated beautifully to these children like they ate it up like crazy like we we tanned a a deer skin a deer hide and and everyone got to make a little medicine bag with the with this like super soft hide that we made we you know all ended up making like little miniature bows and arrows we managed to gather like just tons of berries and explore the creeks and you know, just move invisibly on the landscape. And, you know, we could, we could like disappear. We could actually like run out the front door and take like 10 steps into the woods and then just fade into the bushes. And all the other kids at the camp would go, where did they go? You know, we became like legends instantly in that community. And I kind of got in trouble for doing that sometimes because, you know, there's a, there is a, there is a learning curve to what what can you teach kids and what should you teach kids. And uh, it was uh, a little bit uh, touch and go there for a while until I kind of figured out, yeah, some things are a good idea or a good idea with parameters. But within that, we just... We, I just saw the change that happened in those children, and it led, in a long, long story short, it led to me opening my own camp in 1989. So I had about four or five years of really diving into teaching at camps, teaching in after-school programs, teaching in uh, school group programs in my community with uh, you know other schools and then saying all right I'm going to I'm going to launch my first camp. And so in 1989 I started Hawk Circle Wilderness Camp and we I think we had 12 students, 12 campers and for 2 weeks we just had a blast and we got to do everything that I wanted to do for years without having to say do barn cleaning and horseback riding a lot of the stuff that I was not as excited about doing prior I love that stuff now but at the time I really was like wilderness is the way to do it, go and so I formed my camp it was a success and then I just kept growing a little bit every year, adding a different camp, working with different age groups, picking different subject matters, going deeper and deeper in training them about wilderness survival and tracking and nature awareness and making crafts and just having this like really fun community, playing games and exploring. And I guess, you know, it really was a leadership or what I call a, a human development program hidden in a wilderness camp. And I taught myself really how to do this. I've learned from a lot of different types of educators and instructors and wilderness guides over the years, but I never had really had much instruction on 
the curriculum or anything like that. I kind of had to like figure it out on my own and, you know, learn how to pick the right staff and learn how to, how much activity is too much. I had to learn, well, what is the benefit of giving people downtime and that there's this like beautiful rhythm of the day that we kind of discovered as we went that when you followed that really helped to help the students really connect to nature in a you know, kind of in a body sense of it, you know, a, a, a physical experience for them that they had in their body. Like their bodies liked being in nature. They liked being hot and in the sun. They liked feeling that cold water when they would plunge into a deep pool in the creek. And and so it was like a experience helping these children awaken something that was already inside of them, what I call like the primal self, so to speak. You know, the ancestral, the the part of us that is still a hunter-gatherer, you know, for a hundred thousand years, two hundred thousand years of our ancestors doing these activities, making things, listening to the birds, and connecting with each other in a really beautiful, supportive way in a in a community. And that journey really led me to running all different kinds of programs for the next thirty-five years. I mean, obviously, I'm skipping a ton of stuff out of like you know relationships and moving and you know all the different types of things that I also learned along the way, but. But my, my forest education journey really started with Tom Brown and with my, those books and, and the being inspired and then culminated with, you know, me going to colleges and delivering programs for college students or going and doing programs for nonprofit boards and leadership or doing work at a school in an after-school program and working at a festival, working in ways that I would say are radically different, you know, like I would, I would work for and do a programs for like, say the Audubon chapter somewhere where they would say, oh yeah, can you do a program for, for kids? And then all the, all the kids that showed up were like six years old and they're like way too young for the kind of programs that I was doing with 10, 11, 12 year olds. And so I had to like really think on my feet a lot and figure out how to translate what I wanted to share or what I could share to create experiences that would have value for the parents and those children. And I've worked in group homes for emotionally disturbed and traumatized teenagers. And I, I tried to kind of fill my work with the collected knowledge of that because I, when I would just focus on like taking what I learned from Tom Brown and applying it to the group, that worked sometimes and a lot of times it didn't work very well. It didn't translate very well because Tom is a very unique individual and he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge and he also is like a fire hose of intensity, passion, and skills. And so when he turns that on, that nozzle, it's... You know, it's kind of like trying to drink from a fire hose. It's really not a fun experience because you're just, it's just too much, too fast. And in some of it's intellectual, some of it's um, more intuitive. But I knew that my students really could benefit from really me looking and saying, what what is it that they are getting out of this? How are they appreciating these different things? Just because I think it's a great idea to you know, build a fire in the rain doesn't mean that everybody there is excited about that. So, so how do I maybe shift that activity so that everyone can have a good experience and it isn't necessarily the most extreme version of what we could do? We became much more student focused in our, in my program. So it was a real eye-opening experience. And 
we began to recognize too that there were elements of like this rite of passage experience and mythology that it that this wasn't just you know learning say how to make a basket you know this kind of specific craft but that weaving a basket gathering materials all became a metaphor so to speak for bigger things that were happening in our lives where there was also an element of that imagination that came in so it it was a it was really the 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 35 years that I've spent doing this you know I I spent time focusing on training my instructors and training camp staff and running residential programs here at Hawk Circle and just trying to practice and learn at a really high level and in that journey began to see something really emerge from that work that was starting to transcend like some of the wilderness skills that that the wilderness skill focus that like say Tom Brown had. But the idea here was how can I do a program that benefits students where they're at and how do we modulate that when they have no experience at all? And I started to shift and say, all right, maybe we're doing too many activities and skills. What if I took one or two of those out of the program and just focused on the 10 skills that we were currently doing instead of 12 or 15? And I found like, oh, wow, it actually got better when we did a little bit less. Okay, what well, do we need to do more social games? Do we need to do more awareness games? Do we need to have time where they're just hanging out around the fire and we're not actually being held by a, a leader-led program but more of a group-led program at times and it it was really interesting to me to see that evolution in myself and in my staff and in the experience and so I just became more and more open to learning about and learning from lots of different people and so you know I'm I'm leaving like so many stories out and adventures and mentors that I've had and everything but what I wanted to really share with you all about this kind of my origin here is that at about seven years ago, I realized that I had taught, I added up all the kids and campers and staff and students and training programs that I've run and everything. I went year by year and I just estimated how many students I had, you know, I took the actual data. In some case, I had to estimate a little bit. I always estimated low instead of high, but I realized that Hawk Circle the organization I created and founded back in back in the day had at that point had taught like 13,000 plus students over those years. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, 13,000, that sounds like a huge number. I mean, it is a big number. And believe me, my body can feel the mileage of teaching all those kids and, you know, all the work that it was and everything. And and the and I can remember all the, the joy in their faces and the anxiety they'd have, like being in the woods. All this stuff comes flooding back when I think of 13,000 people out there uh, trying to connect them to nature. But then at the same time, that was the year that the Gulf oil spill happened, where we had this tremendous ecological disaster in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And I realized that 20 years earlier, we had had the Exxon Valdez oil spill up in Alaska, along the coast of British Columbia and Alaska. That was incredibly horrible then as well. And I looked back and I went, you know, we're not doing enough. It's not penetrating. So whatever work I'm doing is not having a big enough impact on the lives of of all of us to where we are 
creating a culture of, of young people and older folks who can say we need to do things differently and then have the ability to find the leadership and the answers and collectively find a way to move into a different way of life that is less damaging to this planet and that is restorative rather than extractive. And, and I just sat there and went, I'm not doing enough. What I, yes, I can keep running this program and that program. And yes, the people that come to it will get something from it. And I, I can feel really good about that. But I thought I've got to find a way to support more of this work being done and to reach not just 13,000 people, but maybe 13 million, maybe 100,000. You know, like I, I was trying to figure out what, how do I effectively take what I've learned and, and the things that I know can benefit the world today, the people in our, in our lives. And how do I translate that? And so that has been, it has been a seven-year journey for me to study and learn and read and do coaching programs and everything, to read about and learn about how people connect to each other, how do they find and get inspired by ideas, how do people develop, you know, programs like forest educator programs that can have an impact, you know, for children, both at an early age and for adults and everyone in between. And it's really led to me forming this podcast as one of the culminating factors in this process, because to me, it's really going to be key for us to create a community of people who are really dedicated to studying this and doing this work and looking to find ways to shift the dominant paradigm. And I mean that in a way that's not like radical. It's not, I don't mean that in an earth first kind of way, but more of a, if anybody even remembers what earth first is, but it's really in a way that says, hey, you know, we're all, we all share as stakeholders in the future of our communities and our culture and our children and in our, the health of our society. And, and so what can we do and how can we create partners in that, in the, the being a stakeholder and how can we help them? Because, you know, schools are struggling and they know that their children are highly anxious. They're, you know, they're depressed. They're, they're working on their mental health. I mean, like the things they're going through are incredibly challenging and, Adults have challenges and, you know, parents are struggling. Like everyone is like just working so hard. And I thought we have to find a way to find who are, you know, who is doing really wonderful work. How are they doing it? What are some, you know, triumphs or um, successes that they're having? What are the best practices that they're finding? What solutions are they, are they, you know, encountering? And can that be shared with all of us in a way that will help us all move forward faster? You know, I don't want to wait for another disaster. And, you know, all of this plays in to me developing the Forest Educator Program. And the whole thing is part of what I call the Forest Educator Initiative. And that includes online trainings that are available to anyone anywhere in the world, in-person trainings that I would deliver here at Hawk Circle or travel to a community and say, hey, I'll do a training in your community if you'd like to be share some of these concepts and skills and activities and games and crafts. And then the Forest Educator Initiative also includes what I call the Forest Box for Kids, which is a subscription box for children who want to learn crafts and skills and get gear and nature journals sent directly to them, you know, with audio stories and skills. I mean, it, it's a cool little box that, that families can get and then they can do those nature skills together. 
And so I'm, I'm actually piloting and developing that program right now. And I'm hoping to add the forest box for teachers or educators and have in that box things that an educator would want for their class or their group that would give them enough for 10 students or 15 or 20 students activities they can do to just basically support teachers because, you know, most of the things that I've done in my wilderness programs, I hand make. I go out in the woods and go, hey, we need to get wood for coal burning bowls and spoons for these kids. And they'll find a tree that fell over and I'll cut that tree up and I'll split the wood up and I'll put it upstairs in my barn. And then a year later, two years later, I'll pull that wood out and go, here we go. And I know how to do that because I know how to use a chainsaw and I know I have a barn to store it in and I have 200 acres of forest that are always changing. And I know how to gather milkweed on the side of the road after it's died and you know the butterflies have done their thing and all that. I can gather those stalks and use them for fibers to get these beautiful silky fibers for uh, teaching children about cordage and making necklaces and on and on. There's just so many things I teach. But for if you're someone that just says, hey, I really want to awaken my my kids. I want to get them inspired. Let, is there something we could do? I'd really like to support that because if I can make it easier for people to teach children about getting out in nature, then I 100% want to do that. So so the Forest Educator Initiative is really all about that. And, and, and that's really where I am in my life right now is to really focus on putting that out there and advocating for these changes at every level across a spectrum of forest educators, not just teachers, but all all types. I actually have an episode of my podcast called What is a Forest Educator? And I go way into all the different kinds of people who are doing incredible work in this field. So that's who I'm talking about when I say this. And right now I'm living in Cherry Valley, New York, which is where Hawk Circle is located. In upstate New York, we're about 11 miles from Cooperstown. And a lot of people know that because of the Baseball Hall of Fame in this little tiny town. But we live up here and I live with my wife, Trista, and my son, Javier. And we are trying to put this thing together. And and that's really, you know, in a nutshell, my journey. So I I know there's a lot more that will come from that. And I know that you'll probably all hear little bits and pieces of my story along the way in interviews I do as well. You can always, of course, go to my Forest Educator website. And I'm really excited to meet people like yourself and hearing about your story because that's the thing that's making me excited is hearing what you're doing and what you're needing and what you're excited about. So anyway, welcome to the Forest Educator Initiative and have an incredible rest of your day. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my Forest Educator Nature Journals and Curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.